Let me be perfectly explicit in this podcast. Okay, here it goes. Hello, it's The Gist. It's Saturday, I hope, and this is The Saturday Show, where we bring you a interview or segment from the vaults, and one from the last week, one that we thought was particularly good or relevant, and that one this week is my initial reactions to the Depp heard verdict. Uh, later, I, I, I stewed on these, or at least contemplated them, and in a Friday, yesterday's show, although, you know, the time-space continuum is interrupted here in podcast land, but yesterday I expanded on the original thoughts a little bit, but I still stand by the original thoughts about so much of the commentary at just assuming that the jury got it wrong, the costs of that, and a little bit about the nature of acting. And then, given that we're talking about perhaps canceling all student debt, I bring you an interview from 2016. I talked to my friend Adam Davidson, founder of Planet Money, about that very topic before there was even a Democrat in office who was seriously considering it. So in the second half, of this segment, Saturday show, you will hear my thoughts on the Depp Heard verdict. But first, and right now, please enjoy this Adam Davidson interview from about five and a half years ago. So joining me now is Adam Davidson, who covers economics and taxes for The New Yorker. And we just heard from Jill Stein, and one of Jill's ideas was to eliminate college debt. Um, I can tell you, Adam, that originally she had this idea about using quantitative easing, and I and Jordan Weissman from Slate and others said this was kind of a crazy idea, not the way to use quantitative easing. I won't even have on my show laid out why it's not the right way. I know you agree with me. She has backed off that. It's literally the worst idea. It is. Yeah, it's yeah. such a, it would destroy central banking. It would destroy the so dollar. So not a good idea. Yeah, it's a, so this is why she said to me that she has moved away. I can I can say that she's moved away from that as the particular uh, policy prescription, the particular way she is going to eliminate college debt. But as we heard in the interview, she's still talking about eliminating college debt. And I want to ask you, as someone who knows economics. Uh, how useful would it be or how harmful would it be if there was, through the ways she was talking about, a tax on finance, etc., we wiped out our college debt? How, what would that do for America and Americans? We have gotten to the point where we talk about this college, the student loan crisis, mm -hmm. but it's a very differently distributed crisis. So the people for whom it is a profound crisis, a life-changing, life-worsening, life-constraining crisis, are people who went to private colleges, didn't get a degree, or got a degree that was worthless. And then some people who went to non-private colleges. But basically, the, the vast majority of people with student debt do have more student debt than their parents at this point in their life. It is an issue. It, it's it's both an issue because it's just hard to have student debt, but it also does all sorts of things to the economy. It delays them buying their first home. It delays them. It maybe constrains what kind of jobs they can take. Like it's not a nothing issue, but it's very manageable. So the um, premium you get for having a good college degree, and that does not just mean Harvard and Yale. That means 
basically any college you've heard of that isn't in the city you're in. Mm-hmm. So, like, you and I have heard of... Well, or some that are in the city. Let's yeah, say yeah. you happen to live in Cambridge. Or is it, or yeah. even Ames, Iowa. Right, but people who've yeah. heard of it that are in another city. Right, so right, you right, probably right. have not heard of, like, Anderson College in Andersonville, South Carolina. Is that the one in Andersonville? Oh, South Carolina. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, yeah. Okay, just someone use that as an example mm-hmm. of, like, a business degree from Anderson College is, like you're in a worse position than if you never went to college. I don't mean to pick on that one. But I, I just mean any place that has enough of a rep- reputation that people outside of its yes, city. That this, that this signifies to people this is a bona fide educated person. Right. And has the perhaps added degree of actually giving you an education. Yes. yes. Yeah. Now, there are issues there and, and kind of once you're in second and third tier schools, you you might need to have a applicable degree and mm-hmm. you know in a stem field or some other field you want to the go more into. Debt you have in, in general the more debt you have from the worst school the worse you are yes so and, a lot and, of debt from a right. great school some debt from a bad school these are not great positions to be in yes yeah. exactly so go to harvard get as much debt as you want well, and major in french literature you're maybe screwed <laughs> Pro- i mean you're screwed if you make career choices that Pursue French literature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, your degree is fine in French <laughs> yes, literature. Yes, yes. You have a lot of options. Right. But if you choose to become, go into puppetry, then... I was just thinking, puppetry is the one I was thinking of. Yeah. I think this is hypothetical person's dad runs a hedge fund, though. So yeah, it's yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Anyway, I don't mean to, like, you know, you and I both have kids and they're young and it's they're a ways puppets. before they'll have go to college, but it's going to be hard. Like, it's going to be harder for us to pay for our kids' college than it was for our parents to pay for our college. That's just... And, and that that's a big problem and it should be dealt with. But the population that we should truly be worried about in America is people whose parents did not go to college who are trying to go to college. We become very good at getting those kids into college, We become, but we are just stuck and we're not getting them to graduate college. Yeah. And so this idea of getting into college but not completing, so you get the debt but you don't get the degree – or in some cases you get the degree, but it's a very low value degree or a zero value degree. Those are the people where there's a crisis. Yeah. They are stuck in poverty because of student debt. There's a totally different problem for middle class and above kids of middle class and above parents who also went to college, who get a degree and then struggle a bit in their 20s to find a, a good job and a good career. But on balance, that population is going to make way more money as a result of going to college than their parents did. So the premium for a college degree at a decent school has grown dramatically and way outpaced the cost of a degree. So if in Jill Stein's universe money has no meaning and you can you can just zero out a trillion dollars and it has no implication, okay, maybe we want to raise student debt for some reason. But if we're going to have a trillion dollar write-off, mm-hmm. I would much rather focus it and concentrate it on the people who are in deep crisis. The basic story of America going from like 1880, 1890, which is basically a medieval economy. It's an agrarian local economy with where the average person will never go to high school, is barely literate, and is a subsistence farmer, to the America of the 1970s where the average person is doing 13 times better than their ancestors were 100 years earlier. 
a total transformation of life. Education is a major part of it. We went from a country in 1900 where t- fewer than 10% of Americans even attended high school. By World War II, half of Americans are graduating high school. By the 1970s, it's the norm to graduate high school, and we're beginning to eat into college where more and more people are going to college, and then it just kind of stops. And so the mobility, getting the children of non-college-educated kids through college we're just stuck there. And that is the inequality crisis. Through college. But it seems like you're perhaps saying that it might be a good idea to absolve the debts of those who have accrued debts but didn't get their college degree. But wouldn't that create a moral hazard? Like, oh, you worked hard to graduate. We're not going to wipe out your debts. You didn't work hard enough to graduate. Okay. Everything was free. So what I would say we need is a lot more money going to the high-risk kids at the high-risk schools. So we need a lot more money spent on mentoring them, on helping guide them through school, unfortunately on remedial education because a lot of them are entering college with you know very low levels of math and, and, and regular literacy. If you go to a top-tier school, so an Ivy League mm-hmm. or like where, where I went, University of Chicago, that average school is spending about hundred, more than $100,000 per student. And each student is paying about $50,000. So that student's already getting an unbelievably subsidized education, for which they're paying a lot, but they're not paying anywhere near the full cost. So that person is already getting a huge benefit. And then their lifetime earnings are something like it's several hundred thousand dollars more per year of of completed college. Um, That's just not like we don't. That's. That's not the thing we should spend. That's money a public on, policy problem. It's an issue. Yeah. We should think yeah. about it. We should find ways. I, I would love to for states not to cut funding to their public universities. And and we should find ways to incentivize states to fund their public universities better and, and, and have more lower cost options. But where we should dramatically increase the the US government debt and is 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 not cutting the debt of middle-class people who are totally capable of paying it off, but but actually subsidizing the education of the poor. That, but what about Hillary Clinton's idea of debt-free public education? You know, that was an adjustment after um, Bernie, you know, Bernie pushed her. Pushed yeah. her. Um, I, I think that the way those numbers end up working is it's, you know, you, you're, you're transferring on balance, you're going to end up transferring money from the poor to the rich. Because if you think about who's looking at public universities, you know, and I could ima- I would love a universe where we have really good public universities and they're free. That sounds mm-hmm. great. And Europe does it. And yeah. Lots of other countries do it. And that sounds great. Well, it, she's not saying free. She's saying debt free. Debt free. Yeah. If you are a capable college student and your parents make less than fifty or $60,000 a year, you're very likely to get to leave school debt free, you know. Many of the Ivies have now have a needs-blind admission, and, and if your parents make less, in some cases, of 125000 something okay. like that, the colleges you know, can't be more than 10% of their income, depending on the school, and, and, and I think if it's below fifty or 60000 it's free. One clear outcome of this idea of making public, not fundamentally changing how we provide college education, but just making it much cheaper for more people to go to public universities, is I think you just end up taking kids who are going to elite private schools and sending them to public schools. To, to, um, so, so you're 
the slots are going more to richer kids who are like, yeah, yeah, I'll take the debt-free one. Why mm-hmm. not? And like I said, I don't think the issue for most people is debt. The issue for most people who have an issue is really not enough in a sense, not enough debt. I mean, for the country as a whole, not for them individually. Yeah, not enough money being spent. the people who can afford yeah. to pay. Yeah. Uh, right. This is a way of, if we talk about income inequality, one way to get things more e- equal is for people who can't afford to pay for things to pay for those things. Yeah. And so the people who can't afford as well don't have to pay. And I get your point. Yeah. We disagree because I would, I would like my kid to go to uh, public school debt free. So we disagree just because of selfishness, if, that, if that's all right. Well, yeah. And if, right. The Mike Pesca tax where everyone has to pay a tax to Mike Pesca. You probably yeah. support that policy. That tax is this show. Yeah. 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 Um, but let me just give you – I mean this shocked me personally. But if you look at the average um, – so the average education at an Ivy League school, which the sticker price is fifty or 60000 a year, but the average person pays considerably less than that. And it's 100-something thousand dollars – of value that mm-hmm. you're getting, of money, be- actual money being spent on teacher yeah. salaries. And of course, I'm, you know, I think most people look at this downplay, all this stuff about like fancy student unions and all that. But you're basically saying, OK, this group of people get a hundred something thousand dollar value and they have to pay like twenty, twenty five thousand dollars for it. If you look at the average community college, the value is something like eight thousand dollars and the average person is paying like four thousand. I'm off a little on the numbers, but it's we're we're basically subsidizing the already privileged to the tune of seventy five, eighty thousand dollars a year as a whole system. I'm not. I don't mean mm-hmm. the, that's government plus the endowment of of the private schools plus scholarships and all that stuff. Something like eighty thousand dollars, and we're subsidizing the community college like four thousand dollars per student per year. The Graduation rates at the top schools are like 96%. Even the like third tier publics, it's like 67%. But community college, it's like less than 40%. And like CUNY, I mean, you and I live in New York. I've always thought CUNY was a great program. It's something like 20% graduation rate. It's terrible. Yeah. So if you kind of figure out the average student is getting a $4,000 subsidy, but you only get it really if you graduate. So the average student isn't graduating. Yeah. And if so, four out of five students aren't getting that, yeah. if you do the math, it winds up not being a subsidy at all. Yeah. And yeah. it's just if you came to America from Mars or something and said, like, so how do you guys, like, <laughs> I, I, I just read that education is a crucial step towards living a prosperous life in this country. It's a huge value. So how do you Tell do it? Tell me how you've prioritized How that. you prioritize it? Well, what we do is, like, there's this group of people whose parents went to college. They're definitely going to college. They're almost definitely graduating. They can make some choices, but basically, if they want to, they can have a lifetime of comfort. And we subsidize them $80,000 a year. And then there's this group of people who we call marginally attached to the workforce. Um, They are totally unprepared for college. They need enormous handholding. And it is a potentially transformative impact on their life. Yeah. But we give them like a grand or two a year, but a lot of them also give us like several thousand a year. And that, and then we have this new politician who says, let's do a program that increases the $80,000 subsidy to $110,000. You get my point. I do. Okay. What you're saying is quantitative easing for student debt is a great idea. It's a great, great idea. idea. Yeah. Adam Davidson covers economics for The New Yorker. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Mike.
Today, Johnny Depp is on paper a little more than $10 million richer. Most importantly, a Virginia jury, I think, gave him back his career. I was, I'm going to say shocked by the verdict in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial where they were both found to have defamed each other. But Depp was awarded $15 million by the jury. $5 million of that punitive verdict was reduced by statute under Virginia law. I was shocked because I was informed by a couple of pieces that were actually outside the evidence of this jury, things like the UK courts finding against Johnny Depp, and they have a higher standard for proving defamation, the unlikelihood of Amber Heard or really anyone perpetuating a massive and ongoing scam, Johnny Depp's general demeanor, his substance abuse problems. He was shown to flail around and at least beat up in on inanimate objects. However, I didn't watch, read, or listen to all six weeks of the trial. Still, I could never, I talked about it here, I could never come out here in this space and say Amber Heard was abused. I do think it's more likely than not that she was abused, but I couldn't say that. And I would have if I thought there was really incontrovertible evidence. I am not one to default to what we always have to say, allegedly. I'm not excessively worried about slander. Uh, In my past as a journalist, I've really fought back on saying allegedly when it's not just alleged, but it's uh, it's shown it's shown to be the truth. I once got into a fight with an NPR editor about my saying that Barry Bonds took performance-enhancing drugs, and he said, no, you got to say allegedly. I'm like, I do not have to say allegedly. Even Barry Bonds admits it. The dispute is if he knew that the substance he was given was a performance-enhancing drug, but I'm not going to excessively inject uncertainty when there seems to be certainty. But on this, I just couldn't be absolutely certain. Still, I do think that she was likely abused, though the jury saw it differently. And so point one is, I do in general think we have to defer to jury decisions. We should trust our institutions unless there's a real reason not to. I know that many people say, well, the real reason is that we live in the patriarchy and we've been taught all our lives that this doesn't happen. No, I just think there are great costs to go shopping for the verdicts we like or the verdicts we don't. If we do that, then how are we better than all the people who saw the verdict in that Michael Sussman trial brought by special prosecutor John Durham, who are of course, Trump acolytes and simply won't accept any jury verdict they don't want. There's another school of thought on this, which is uh, facts are facts and a thing happened or a thing didn't and juries either get it right or wrong and just call it as you see it. I think that, especially because we didn't watch the whole trial, we should give credit to uh, a jury knowing that they are people and they can get it wrong, but they probably were a little more informed than all of us. Now, Some of us will not believe they were more informed because most of the people with the strongest opinions on this, at least in the world that I take my information from, which are op-ed columnists in, in outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post and the New Yorker, many of the people most passionate about this trial are people who are most steeped in the nature and literature and studies of abuse. Now, here is... Not the problem with that. I'm in favor of all knowledge and against ignorance. But there are aspects to knowing so much about how abuse works and how abusers get away with it that perhaps falsely convince the person or the audience that they're really good at spotting when it happens or when it doesn't. I'll give you a couple examples. 
The same kind of people who are most apt to think that Amber Heard was lying would say something like, well, why would anyone stay with him if he was abusing her? And that's very frustrating to someone who's very familiar with the literature because they know that happens all the time. And there have been studies on this. And the victim often feels in the thrall and in control of the abuser. But that's when the victim is the victim. In this case, the question was, was she not the victim? Did he never abuse her? And I would say, even if you know everything there is to know about how abusers control their victims, you don't know that much about when the situation is not happening, when it's a false allegation. There hasn't been a study of falsely accused abusers and the behavior of the supposed victims in that circumstance. I'll give you another example of how being steeped in the literature won't actually help you figure out, was this all a lie? DARVO. Do you know the term DARVO? It's uh, an acronym that stands for Deny, Attack, Reverse, Victim, and Offender. It's a commonly used tactic by abusers to, common term now is gaslight, but put the blame on the person that they are abusing. And there are studies on this. And a large percentage of abusers engage in DARVO tactics. However, there have been no studies on non-abusers who are accused of abuse. But when you think about just examples in the real world, DARVO, kind of an overly technical acronym to just explain a common type of denying wrongdoing, right? It's, I know you are, but what am I? That essentially is DARVO. Think about Mallory uh, McMorrow. She was the Michigan legislator who was falsely accused of grooming. Didn't she engage in DARVO? Didn't she say, well, I deny that I'm, I'm a groomer. She, she wasn't. I attack you. How dare you call me an abuser? And she was right to do that. I'm actually the victim here. You are the offender for making those false accusations. So what is the presence or knowledge that DARVO is a tactic used by abusers? How does it really inform us or tell us the truth of the question when the crux is, is this allegation uh, based in fact or just a concoction of the alleged abused party. Last thing I was thinking about is just the nature of acting. If, as I believe, Amber Heard really was abused, well, what about her performance on the stand? That was some terrible acting. But she's a professional actress. She knows how to act. See, the thing is, I don't think that what we regard as great acting is convincingly lying to a crowd of onlookers. I think a lot of people maybe think, well, what what is acting? What is it really, really doing? Oh, you're embodying how a person experienced something would react and you're showing that reaction on your face so that other humans can say, wow, they're really going through that thing. I don't actually think that's what acting is. I think what acting is, what the acting we take pleasure in is our perception of how someone might react, but most importantly, as played out on the face of a compelling figure. It can mean beautiful as compelling, or it can be compelling, Steve Buscemi, compelling in other ways, but when we see that played out on a face of an actor in a way that we say to ourselves, oh yeah, that's how people might react, we call that great acting, but that is very different from actually behaving how people actually would if they were in that circumstance. I could, uh, I'll give you examples of this at a later time. I was in a live taping of when Artie Lang was on the Joe Buck show and he said something shocking and I had presence of mind to look to my left just to gauge the audience's reaction. And everyone was in 
an open-mouthed stupor, the likes of which that if you tried it on camera, a director would say, cut, what are you doing? You look like a cartoon. But that's how everyone actually looked. So I think Amber Heard, if she was lying, wasn't being a bad actress because that's what actors or actresses actually do all the time. They embody the experience of someone else or a fictional character. And if she was actually telling the truth, I don't think she was a bad actress. I just think acting isn't what maybe most people think acting is. I don't think it's necessarily the actor's ability to convey the actual experience of a person who went through the thing. I mean, the last point on that is just look at Amber Heard's reaction to the verdict. This was among the most crushing moments of her life. And she sat there somewhat unexpressive, I guess because unlike what the jury came to believe about her relationship with Johnny Depp, that wasn't a performance. And that's it for the show. Thanks as always to Corey Wara and Joel Patterson, the production staff, in the uh, assistant and senior positions respectively. And of course, Michelle Pesca, the COO of Peachfish Productions. Talk to you on Monday.